When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. If your family was open, if they had secrets that might have affected you, do you ever think how your life might be different if you knew all that? If your mom shared things with you? that you later deem so important? Well, there's a fascinating book called Shonda, which means shame, a memoir of shame and secrecy by a very famous New York writer and activist, Letty Cotton Pogrebin. Very interesting to read this book. In fact, we have a terrific show every Sunday at two o'clock, but in addition to this fascinating topic, which really has an impact on almost everyone. Ken Burns, you know Ken Burns, he's the greatest documentary filmmaker in the country. And Ken Burns has come up with his crew, a fascinating look on the United States and the Holocaust. And that is also something that you are going to want to pay attention to and deal with because it has information that we have never seen before or had before, including stories about Anne Frank's family. Really an amazing documentary. So all you have to do is remember Sunday at two o'clock, the Joan Hamburg Show, and you're off to a really good start. Enjoy the rest of the day. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WAVC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. The apple orchards are up and running fast. Delicious apples to be picked. And always this time of year, I think about apples, homemade applesauce. I know you're going to say, I don't want to make applesauce. It's a deal. It isn't a deal. It's so easy. We make it all the time. I just throw apples. You can quarter them if you want. Don't peel them. Don't core them. I put them in a big pot with a little bit of water, cinnamon stick, and I cook them until the apples get soft. That method allows every bit of apple goodness to be retained. And once they're cooked down, I put the apples in my trusty old-fashioned food mill, sort of give it a few turns, and I've got perfect applesauce. I never even add sugar, lemon juice. I do add cinnamon sometimes. A food mill, a manual one, inexpensive, and one of those gadgets every kitchen should have. I use it for applesauce, mashed potato, soups, tomato sauce. It strains and mashes at the same time. Most of them come with a colander bowl, a disc, and a crank. 
and you can even take them apart and use the colander alone if you need an extra one. You can get the Miro 50024 Fully Stainless Steel Food Mill. It's $35. You can get the Cuisinart one, Stainless Food Mill, $39.50, or the OXO Good Grips Food Mill, and that's the most expensive, $50. But go anywhere. Everyone's got them. The hardware store, and I use it all the time. And if you've never had homemade applesauce, you're in for a treat. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Ken Burns and his co-director, producer, Lynn Novak, have come out with a new documentary, a six-hour film that will take place over three nights on PBS, The U.S. and the Holocaust. And... You know, like so many people, I've always thought of our country as the welcome, the welcome place for all immigrants and refugees, all our huddled masses. And then I saw the documentary. And I have so many questions that I want Ken and Lynn to answer. First of all, I'm curious why this particular topic at this time? Well, we've been thinking about this for many years, and we've been working on it for seven years. So it's not um, new that we <laughs> planned it this way, but we um, we certainly realize that a good number of the themes, particularly the uh, anti-Semitism and uh, the question of anti-immigrant sentiment, are very topical today. But we don't choose our topics uh, that way. Uh, we were interested in exploring something that most people think they don't have any role in. And, and you're absolutely right. We, we advertise ourselves as a nation of immigrants. We are a nation of immigrants. And at times we have been at least tolerating, if not welcoming, those immigrants. But at a critical moment in world history, when people were fee- uh, fleeing the persecution of the Nazis, uh, we did. We only let in a fraction of the people who could have come in. Right. And as we're watching this film, we're, yes, part of the past, but we're part of the present too. The yes. immigration issue, the refugee issue, is right up at the front of so many things. And it, it's, it sort of shakes you because our belief system gets a shock when we see it and hear it. And of course, in all your documentaries, they're visual as well. So it was quite an extraordinary ride. But I'm curious, how did your crew feel being so involved in something like this? There had to be a lot of pain uh, yes, thank you for asking that question. You know, this is a very dark and difficult subject, and there's just no getting around that. And our producers, our wonderful team of producers and researchers and our editors were the ones who had the most, you know, immersive experience of dealing with the archival material, the photographs and the footage, some of the worst things that have ever happened in human history. And they had to look at that. And, you know, we worked with them very closely 
to try to figure out how much to show, what to show and what not to show and not to show too much and not to show too little because, you know, we understand even to this day, there's still the phenomenon of people who think that the Holocaust didn't happen. And the proof is partly in these images. So we, ha we do have to show it, but we also have to be careful not to dehumanize the people who suffered and were persecuted by showing the awful things that were done to them. And, you know, that was really important to us because we also wanted our audience to understand what the American people knew at the time. And there was a tremendous amount of news coverage of the Nazis, of Hitler, of what he was saying, of the persecution of Jews, of the attacks on Jews, deportations, even mass killings as that started to happen. The American people knew a lot about what was going on. And as Ken was just saying, you know, that did not translate into a willingness to open our doors to the people who were, you know, in mortal peril. Right. And American heroes like Lindbergh, people, mm -hmm. you know, it's been a long time, are going to have their memories jolted and shocked again. I with, think we'll be surprised right? by, Joan, by how mm -hmm. many people uh, in the sort of the firmament of our of our historical uh stars, uh, you know, that uh, Charles Lindbergh could be so blatantly uh, uh, anti-Semitic leading uh, an, an isolationist organization called America First, I'm familiar. Uh, Henry Ford, the automobile magnet, was an even more vile anti-Semite who reprinted in a, a newspaper that he bought that ha ended up with the second largest circulation in the United States of the lies of a Russian hoax from the uh, 19th century called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which online is still the Bible of the Holocaust deniers and, and anti-Semites uh, everywhere. Uh, people believed in eugenics. The, uh, Theodore Roosevelt did, Helen Keller did, the idea that you could uh, create a hierarchy of races and ethnicities and that that helped drive uh, the creation of an, an immigration law that was passed in 1924 that had quotas for particular countries. And those that were Protestant and certainly white Nordic uh, nations got the biggest uh, quotas and those that had Catholics and Jews uh, had the small and most minuscule. And even though the United States let in 225,000 refugees during fleeing Hitler's um, uh, genocide, uh, more than any other sovereign nation did, I might add, it nonetheless was about only a fifth of what those quotas would have allowed if the State part Department hadn't slow walked and made it impossible, even for people who had dotted every I and crossed every T. It's just not a very good uh, story. And I, I, to add to your question about how it affected us, I think this has been a, a labor of love. It's been heartbreaking, but it's been heart awakening, too, for all of us who worked on it. I think we're all changed as as filmmakers, but also as human beings. Um, getting involved with this. And it's not, we're not here to chastise the United States. You know, we're here to just say, this is what happened and call the balls and strikes. And the film is filled with real heroes, people who sacrificed everything uh, to try to save other human beings, not just individuals, but organizations. So there are many rays of light in the midst of uh, what is obviously humanity's darkest chapter. You know, I I remember my mother who adored Franklin Roosevelt, 
but mm-hmm. was so, you know, upset isn't even the word for, in her eyes, having done almost nothing to rescue the Jews and stop, which something he knew was going on in the world. And you dealt a lot with um, Roosevelt, and I well, thought it was fascinating. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, many people of your mother's generation feel that same way, and partly because Roosevelt had been such a champion for welcoming and embracing Jews as part of American society and his administration and just generally being out against anti-Semitism. He was the first president to do that. But what we found in looking at the history with a lot of care and going through a lot of detail, talking to scholars who studied it, is that, you know, it's too easy for us to pin all the blame on Franklin Roosevelt. Certainly he bears some responsibility, but he also can't just decide what he wants to do and just do it. It's a democracy. He's not the Fuhrer, as Ken always says. And, you know, there's a very, as we were just discussing, uh, an anti-Semitic isolationist country that doesn't want to welcome refugees. So, and he has to work the levers of power the best he can and try to shift public opinion toward getting uh, more involved in what's going on in Europe. Americans don't want to get involved. And Charles Lindbergh is leading that charge. So while he would have liked to have helped open our doors more, there are constraints. And he's also trying to get the country ready to fight in the war, which ultimately, as he says, is the best way to stop the persecution. We feel he could have done more and should have done more, absolutely. So it's too simple to blame it all on him. We, as Deborah lifts up, the, the Holocaust scholar in our film says, you know, it's on all of us. It's on everybody, not just Roosevelt. Right. And it's interesting that his enemies, that his anti-Semitic enemies saw him as a friend of the Jew, as did Hitler and the German regime. And in fact, exactly. uh, in the United States and outside, they printed a great deal of, of um, anti-Semitic literature that called him Frank D. Rosenfeld and his signature uh, domestic agenda, economic agenda as the Jew deal. So um, I, th- I think that in some quarters he was perceived as not doing enough, and that's certainly true. But as Lynn just explained, very in a very nuanced fashion, a lot of the things he could not do and still kind of accomplish the objectives he needed to bring the country to full mobilization, which he understood was going to happen. So it's it's a very complex. Uh, story and doesn't, uh, you know, lend itself to sort of simplistic villainizing of one Mm -hmm. person or another. Right. I'm talking to Ken Burns and Lynn Novak about their new documentary, which is actually airing um, tonight. And I'm curious, too, with all this and the years involved in the research, did the fact that most Americans still think that the immigration situation should be tough. They don't want to make it easier or loosen standards as they did then. And here we are years later, still opposed when it comes to immigration. Well, it's a, it's a complicated picture, you know, and there's not unanimity of opinion, which is why we have such trouble with this issue to this day. I, I think what we see right now, and we saw then, and consistently is sort of a treating certain immigrants as worthy and other immigrants or potential immigrants as unworthy of being American and of being here and different 
categories of people have been slotted into that position. And so, and that is used by people who are trying to um, gain power and mobilize their base and get people worked up when there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of um, fear, there's a lot of resentment. And these are kind of such powerful emotions and immigrants become the focus of a lot of negativity in our society. And that was true at the turn of the last century. That's how come we ended up with this pernicious law in 1924 and weren't willing to welcome Jewish refugees from Hitler. So there's a persistent theme, but then there's also tremendous generosity. And we recognize on some level that most of us came from somewhere and that we are a nation of immigrants. So it's just, there's sort of an inner conflict in our American identity and we're still trying to work it out. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful description. You know, one of the things that's so interesting, particularly as you look at it now, is those people who live around recent immigrants are totally in support of immigration, generous immigration policies. Those who have very little contact with recent immigrants are the ones most frightened by the politicians that they listen to who use immigrants, who use refugees as a kind of political weapon. And it's been happening, as Lynn suggested, you know, for decades, if not centuries. And viewing it through the eyes of the U.S., United States, did that make a big difference? Yes, you know, I I think, and, and, and Lynn should comment about this too, Joan, is that, you know, by focusing it through the lens of, of us, you know, no pun intended, and the U.S., um, we actually realized that we then had to examine the Holocaust and all of its contours a lot more clearly. And so we learned as much about the Holocaust itself And we think we presented it in a form which will shock people for the new information. Two million people killed in what is called the Shoah by bullets before anyone started talking about using gas. Three quarters of the people murdered uh, by the monstrous Nazi regime were done before there were even American boots on the ground in Italy. It's, It's a very complex dynamic. And paradoxically, having to go back and forth to the United States made us sort of focus in in sort of stunning, I think, relief, the actual magnitude of the crime of of the Holocaust. And so that was important for us to understand that we did know, as Lynn said, what was going on. We did have opportunities to act in some cases. And because of restrictive laws, because of, of overwhelming, unbelievable majorities of citizens fearful in the midst of the Great Depression, um, brainwashed by eugenics and and other media that are demonizing immigrants constantly, um, an overwhelming majority did not want to let people in. And so um, I think that, that it isn't, you know, our finest hour. So, Cam, yeah. oh, I'm, oh, I'm, let me just reintroduce you, so Lynn, Lynn Novak and Ken Burns with their brand new documentary. And... I want to just throw this out, and then, Lynn, you um, go ahead. After all is said and done, did you come to a conclusion of why Americans did not act? Everyone was talking about it in the the press. I know families, many of us Mm. still remember discussions at the table. So 
why, when all is said and done, did America fail to act? Well, you know, I think we would encourage people to watch our film to really get into the deepest uh, answers to that very important question. And but when I went out of corollary that, you know, America did act insufficiently, as Ken was saying, but, you know, we 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 sent millions of soldiers to Europe and we helped win the war and hundreds of thousands of Americans died in that effort. And we did bring in hundreds of thousands of refugees here. So it's, we didn't do nearly enough. And, you know, the gap between what we could have done and what we did, it's the it's the combination of all the things we've been talking about, a sort of fear of immigrants, um, the way our democratic system works and doesn't work, who makes decisions, uh, profound anti-Semitism that had been growing as Jewish populations in the U.S. had, uh, you know, gotten much bigger with the waves of immigration around the turn of the 1900. Anti-Semitism reached just huge dimensions and became very mainstream. And that that's not a small part of, of why Americans didn't want to let in refugees. There was also a fear that refugees might become um, saboteurs and spies for Germany. Kind of a preposterous idea, looking back, but at the time, you know, tying into fear of the other and um, a sense of subversion and people being not trustworthy. It was easy to lay that over. Uh, Jewish refugees couldn't be trusted and therefore couldn't be allowed into the country. It was a security risk. So there are many, many factors uh, that tie into this. And then there's also, I think, on some level, we see this today, you know, there are humanitarian crises around the world. And we see it, we learn about it, we find it devastating and sad, and then we just go back to what we're doing. And so it's very difficult to mobilize action to save people who are far away and who you don't know. And so, right. and that's just a human, you know, a fact of, humanity, of the human condition as well. No, and I think that when people see it, it's not a matter of um, rubbing America's face in it. it it's, it's a story that right. has to be told. Yes, that's right. You just you need to know if we're, if we're going to claim to be the greatest country on earth, the most exceptional people, then we've got to be able to look at ourselves um, as objectively as possible and understand where we can celebrate what we've done. And there are many places to do that. And many films of ours have done that, including within this film of the individual heroics that I was talking about and the, and the various alphabet soup of agencies and NGOs, we would call them, that rescued people out of pure altruism and human generosity. Um, but, you know, we also have to be very mindful of where we don't go right, because that only strengthens you and makes you better if you can delineate that. And unfortunately, so many of these ideas and issues persist to this day. And unfortunately, so many of them have become the kind of um, armaments of political battles rather than larger moral questions. What kind of country have we been? What kind of country do we wish to be? Why is it so hard as the historian uh, Daniel Green says in our film, to have these sets of stories that we tell about ourselves, but unable to live up to those stories, say, of a nation of immigrants or of welcoming uh, the, the, uh, the homeless tempest-tossed um, when times are tough or when uh, push comes to shove or when you really have to suddenly decide. Uh, 
often fear is the motivating factor. And often that fear is manufactured uh, by politicians who see a short term gain in making, as Lynn said, the other of somebody when there's really only one race, the human race, and it's all us and there's no them. And when somebody tells you there is, there's a them, just kind of run away because the solutions to our problems come from the active engagement of not only our strengths, but our weaknesses. So with the immigration situation and, and problems that we have put in front of all of us, do you, in doing a documentary like this, feel a sense of you've got to do it absolutely now? Could this happen again? Yes, very much so. Uh, I've let Lynn answer that, but I think, you know, the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. And and that's what we've got before us, where, you know, we are as divided as we've ever been, and we are as uh, politicized, and uh, the, every everything is, you know, uh, opposites in this country. And, and unfortunately, refugees are still being used as human pawns and games. And we have to remember that every human life uh, is as important to them as our own lives are to us. And what happens in politics is that the idea of the other turns them into an abstraction. And you can't fully understand slavery if you abstract it. You can't fully understand the phrase six million because it has taken on almost a, a meaningless sort of opacity. That is to say the number of Jews, two thirds of the Jews that lived in, in Europe uh, murdered by the Nazis. You have to particularize it as the writer Daniel Mendelssohn says in our film and get to know individuals and get to know their aspirations, get to know the, the lost potentiality of all those human lives not realized. And, and in the case of our current refugee system, to have to put into practice the values, whether they're uh, humanitarian or religious values that we claim to espouse, uh, but often find a very great difficulty to, to literally act on, to make the kind of sacrifices necessary to help those people who need our help the most. Thank you so much, Ken Burns. Thank you, Lynn. And congratulations on the documentary, the 18th tonight, three nights over PBS, the U.S. and the Holocaust. And it's a very important, it will change, it did for me, the way you think and make you really think about things that are so important. I look forward to talking to you both again. Thank you, Joan. Thank you so much. It's been a, a pleasure. Thank you, Lena. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. Much more ahead. Stay tuned. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm really excited today to introduce you 
to Letty Cotton Pogrebin, who is a very well-known American writer, a journey lectures. She's one of the city's great social activists, a founding editor of Ms. Magazine. And in addition to all that, Letty has written 12 books. And I, this is the 12th book, right, Letty? Called right, you are. Shonda, a memoir of shame and secrecy. And it's really interesting how Letty grew up to be Letty with her also interesting family. But let's start from the very basic beginning. All your books, what made you decide to do this? Well, um, I was writing a memoir because I was looking at turning 80. This started in uh, nine. In 2017, and uh, it was going to be a, a conventional memoir, you know, pretty much chronological. But suddenly, as I reviewed my life and what little material I had, documentation to look at, I nonetheless started to see a pattern, and that was that my family was marinated in shame, that there were secrets in every outpost of my family, and, and I grew up with with uh, tw- uh, 24 cousins and 14 uh, uh, uncles and aunts and their spouses. So that's a very large extended family. And I started noticing here and there, everybody had a secret. They were the one, that, that is the ones I knew about. And then I started to wonder about the ones I didn't know about. And in the midst of that, my granddaughter Molly was at college and she took a biography class. And her professor signed her to write a story, a biography of someone living. And she asked me if she could write about me. And she said, if you say yes, Grandma, you can't censor me. You have to let me look at everything. Mm-hmm. And she went up to my um, archives at Smith, Smith College. And she went through all my articles. And she read or skimmed all my books. And then she came to my house and said, where's the childhood stuff? And I pointed to a very deep cabinet in my study in which she sort of burrowed her head and pulled out my teenage diaries. And then she said, what's that? And it was a big old plastic shopping bag full of letters, full of letters. It looked like something that fell off a truck. The letters dated back 80 and 85 years. And from them, I learned what I hope were all the rest of the secrets. Because my parents wrote to each other in very raw terms, and you know, back in the in the twenties and thirties, there were there were letters. There weren't, I mean, barely phone phone phones had been invited invented. So these letters were very revelatory, and that's what really gave me my title. Shonda means shame or scandal, and I realized I was writing a memoir of shame and secrecy. So uh, there are 52 chapters and every one of them has something to do with a secret. Many of them shame-based. Do After I, all is said and done, Letty, is it possible to live a shame-free life? I'm not looking for a shame-free life because I think there are aspects of shame that are very uplifting in that they force you to 
reflect and change and become a better person. If you're ashamed of yourself, you're ashamed of something intrinsic to you. It's the difference between shame and guilt, Joan. You know, we never say, uh, we say, I am ashamed, but we say, I feel guilty. And that's an interesting linguistic clue because feeling guilt is something means you've done something and you can fix it. Feeling shame is seeps into the cells and we have to do much more work on ourselves to rid ourselves of shame and find its roots. Right. And there's so many different, your mom died when she was much too young and too right. young for you. But you also point out in your book, and Letty's book, Shame, a memoir of shame and secrecy, that even losing your beloved mother was shameful in many ways. Yeah, because in, you know, in Ashkenazi Jewish families, and I believe in many other cultures uh, where immigrants carried <clears throat> some of their values and, and shame-based <laughs> sense into this new world, um, Illness reflected badly on your family. You whispered the C word. I didn't know my mother was dying. Nobody admitted it, including my mother, that she even had cancer. Cancer was a secret, partly because people were afraid that they couldn't marry off their children if other Jewish families knew that there was illness. And they thought maybe it would be inherited. Who knew? Nobody knew what cancer exactly was. So my mother never, never told me or anybody that she had cancer. And my father gave me literally four weeks notice that, you know, we've tried everything, but mom's going to die. And, you know, that secret pretty much marked me for life because I was 15 years old and my father wasn't exactly a great parent. And so that was when I started to run my own life, support myself, you know, felt alone in the universe, had to figure things out. Hmm. It's not easy. And also, yeah. in that time, any illness was a secret, but so was anything that didn't look like the perfect leave-it-to-beaver family. Although right. we knew it was impossible, but... Right. Right? I mean, they, they never... Many, many years later, and my mom, like your mom, died very young. And I said to her, why didn't you, there was some issue, why didn't you ever tell me that? And she said, my job was to spare you. Yeah, right. right? It would have been a Shonda, a Shonda, a disgrace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's why, <clears throat> excuse me, that title speaks to so many People who, who, and Shonda has become like an English word. If Maureen Dowd, the Times columnist, feels comfortable using Shonda, and she's from an Irish family, uh, Catholic right. family, you know that Shonda has entered common usage. But in our case, you know, we were trying to make it as real Americans. All my relatives, they were ashamed of where they came from because they came from a shtetl like in Fiddler on the Roof. They were ashamed of my grandparents who had terrible, you know, big accents. Yiddish accents. Um, they wanted to fit in, so they read, the women read Ladies Home Journal, and, you know, the men's men joined men's clubs to 
figure out what the American norm was. Uh, you had to make it. You had to be a financial success. Uh, they they had incredible burdens, and their sense of perfection was so misguided. The only time I ever heard my mother sort of surprised to discover that American marriages wasn't weren't perfect was when she read the remember the Ladies Home Journal had. Can this marriage oh, be saved? My favorite. I love that column. I have no idea why you brought it all back to me. Yeah, because it makes you feel that you're not so bad off. You know, whatever problems women reading the Ladies Home Journal might have had in their marriage, they saw reflected in the pages that were read by 9 million women. I mean, those magazines had humongous circulations back then. So it normalized my mother. Um, But I do write about how miserable their marriage was, how she had felt she had to hide it. I write about a a deep secret in our family that one of the brothers on my mother's side, I can hardly even imagine this, um, brought to a radio show um, called where Mr. Anthony was the problem solver. Hmm. <laughs> and you brought your problems to Mr. Anthony and 23 million people listened. And this brother of my mother's brought the problem to Mr. Anthony that was such a Shonda that <laughs> it was like kept in our family. And that is that my, that, that brother and talked my grandfather into leaving his store just to that brother. There were three brothers. The three brothers were horrified. The whole family ousted him. The brothers never spoke to him again because he went on the air and he said, I'm the only son who's married. I'm the only son who's about to have a child. My grandpa and my father should be giving me the store. The others are, you know, bachelor boys. Well, you know, maybe they weren't going to be bachelor boys forever. Who knows, right? Right. So it really, it broke up. That that was a family of seven children, four girls and three boys. So one boy became that renegade and there were other two didn't speak. And nobody knew this. I mean, we we knew we suddenly stopped seeing our Uncle Lou, but who knew why? (laughs) That's so funny. Do you feel, Letty, that... After you finished the book and then started talking about it, that it's had a real impact on you? It's changed you? Yes, it allowed me, writing the book, I had to face my own secret. You know, I, I, was, I wasn't an angel either. I was hiding a very big secret, uh, which I describe in the book, and um, it was... As Alan Alda, who, who I uh, also quote a lot in the book, was we're very close friends. I mean, he said her secrets are too heavy. You got to get rid of them because they weigh you down. And that was certainly true of me. But getting that out, I won't say what it is. I hope people will read it. Um, it's a health secret. Was um, was so difficult. I mean, it was as birth and a new person. Uh, because I'm pro- I'm a private person with a public life, and there are certain things I felt I just had to keep to myself. 
but I could not do the keep a secret if I'm right if I'm outing my entire family. It just would have been dishonest. And how did the children react, not only to the book but to some of the secrets that you revealed in the book about yourself? Yeah, yes, not just about myself, but aunts and uncles and cousins that they knew. Right. I have a cousin. I have a cousin who um, whose mother died in childbirth. And she was put with me, me, my and my parents. My mother raised her for two, two and a half years, until her father Remarried. could find a new wife. And at two and a half years, she gets moved back to her family where she had an older sister and brother. But no one tells her. No one tells her that this woman who adored her, raised her, whom she loved, named Vera wasn't her birth mother, that she had a birth mother, that her birth mother died because of her, which explained why her sister was so angry at this little baby for coming into the world and killing their mother in the process. So much of a a, hate dynamic built up in that wing of her family privately quietly, secretly. And then Vera died and the big sister screamed, why are you screaming and crying? Why are you crying? She wasn't even your mother. And that's how Sima, my my cousin, found out that um, she had another mother. Mm, These are big secrets. (laughs) These are really, these are life-changing secrets, you know? I know. Huge secrets. And it's still even on a smaller level, was part of those generations. When your children were growing up, were you very open about everything? I I was as open as I could be about what I knew, but I realize now I knew so, there was so much I didn't know. I I didn't know that. I discovered at 12 that my, my parents were married before and my father had abandoned his daughter by his first wife. So I had another sister somewhere in the world that I discovered at 12. And I discovered that the sister I thought was my full sister was my mother's by her first marriage. Um, Someone just said to me, (laughs) she said, I have a lot of secrets in my family, but your family takes the case. Well, but you know, I have 52 chapters of them. Oh, my gosh. But And you're so well-adjusted. <laughs> well, it's a, rea- it's a reaction formation. You know, it's, it's, it's a heavy uh, burden, as I said. But once you get rid of it, you, you really figure out a way to live a, a less complicated life. And uh, I, I can't think of any secrets I'm carrying now that are weighing upon me. It's, it's a light feeling. But when you said, uh, do I want to live a shameless life? I, was, I didn't finish saying, I don't want to live a shame, shameless life because I want shame to dictate some of my good behavior. You know, I, I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to be mean. I want, I, if I were that way, I'd be ashamed of myself. So it censors me. But I want to, I want to live a life without secrets. Because secrets get into your 
kishkas, you know, they get into your gut and they make toxic, they feel toxic. And you don't remember who you're supposed to protect or who you told. When I had this secret illness, that, again, that I had a lot of trouble exposing, I, I told the very closest of my friends, but I forgot who, which ones. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't really clear. So I never knew what, whether I could confide in somebody or whether they weren't one of the ones I didn't tell. I mean, it gets like sixth grade. Mm. Well, when you think about your mother, who you could do another book just on your mom's seal. But, right. Right. She, she was so ashamed of her life. Yeah. And she had such disappointment that yeah. she had to develop who she was going to be, and that made her feel safe. Well, it's the problem is she lied about so much because she was ashamed. She was ashamed that she only graduated from the eighth grade, so she went to a photo studio took a picture and she was all made up to look like she was older. Mm -hmm. And she let that picture represent her at, uh, as if she was a high school graduate. She yes. got rid of her accent by listening to people like you on the radio. She just listened to the radio and, and mimicked it. Um, mm. When she got divorced, divorce was a Shonda. And right. she got divorced in 1927. And she had a... Uh, unheard of in the Jewish world, really, uh, a, a scar, a scandal. So she hid it. She she sent my sister to boarding school, unheard of in the Jewish world. Right. And then she presented herself in the world as a single woman with no child. She had mm. to carry that lie because of her shame of being so transgressive. Mm. Uh, then she did this wild thing you'll remember in the book where when she was dating she had her dates pick her up at her fancy uncle's, uncle's yeah. apartment up in the upper Bronx which better you know, neighborhood better neighborhood at least it wasn't the tenement where where nine people lived in three rooms with a bathroom in the hall mm. so she would have to work her 12 hour day in, in a sewing machine factory get on the subway, go up to to the Bronx, have the guy pick her up, go out, get dropped off at, in the Bronx apartment, and then take the subway back home. And she did all that just to avoid his seeing her parents' apartment, her parents' tenement. Mm. Or any of... I, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Lenny. No, when I think of that, it, it chokes me up. It's just so hard to think of her doing that. Right. And the effort that it took and right. everything to cover it up is almost unheard of. Are any of the relatives from that time still with us? None are with us from my parents' generation, which is why I was freed up to write. But I did send the manuscripts or get approvals from their children who are living to make sure that there was not, nothing that would hurt them. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, they, they were really helpful and, and kind and understanding and said, you know, they're dealing with the same stuff and it's great to get it out there. Were your own children 
surprised by the book? I think my own children were really, really interested in me (laughs) from a whole new perspective. I don't think they saw my origins as clearly. That's one of my regrets, Joan, is that my mother died so young I didn't ask, ask enough questions. I didn't expect to lose a mother when I was 15, so I didn't store up very specific memories. And I think I've complained about that and wept about that for so long that my children now really want information. They want to store up memories and they want to be able to tell their children the family sagas on both sides. Well, you know, I had this discussion recently because, again, my mother, I never really knew if there was How anything. How old were you? I forgot. I was um, n- not as young as you. You were a teenager. I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just so shocking to, you know, I guess it always is when something like that happens. But I said to my kids, because your grandmother never revealed anything major you know, it's mm-hmm. just everything is fine. Everything is fine. And it all revolved around the kitchen and all the relatives. It's just like your family in many mm-hmm. ways. And um, I said, I'm going to tell you everything. And <laughs> at one point, Johnny, my son, said, too much information. We don't need it. And so it depends on how you come to it. <laughs> Uh, your kids turned out fine. <laughs> they're fine, but too much information, so <laughs> they they didn't want to hear that. Oh. I guess, uh, I guess, I guess, if you get that reaction, then leave it in 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 journal form. Exactly. <laughs> For no, when they're but, old enough to want it, and they they will get there. Right. Well, mm. it's it's a remarkable book. It made me sad in a way that your mom hadn't seen Letty Pogerman the way we know her today. And I I felt that moment of longing. I think of that also with my own parents, you know, if only they knew or they were here to see. But yeah, especially since they were so intent upon gaining a foothold in this country. And if they knew that, you know, their their children have accomplished things and married well and have had wonderful children and, you know, have have managed to make lives that they that they would have been proud of. We feel sad for them to stuff. They had so right. much bad stuff. Right. But we go on and our children, thank goodness, are good and them a great gift. So thank you, John. Thank you. And I really enjoyed it. You can all get it wherever books are sold. Lady Cotton Pogrebin, a memoir of shame and secrecy. Shonda. Shonda. S-A-N-D-A. Shonda, which means shame. Right. In Yiddish. Thank you so much, Joan. You're always uh, such a deep reader and an understanding reader. Thank you. Well, thank you, Letty. Take care. Regards to the family, and we'll talk again. Same to you, Joan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you've just heard Letty Pogerman.
There's much more ahead on WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. Where I live, apple picking is in full swing. So if you want to make the applesauce, it's very easy. I have my favorites. The Milk Pail, you pick farm at 50 Horse Mill Lane in Watermill, New York, and this is a nice time to drive out to the Hamptons, is open Friday, Saturday, Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. and some holidays, September 26th, the 27th, Wednesday, October 5th, Monday, October 10th, and the milk pail grows over 20 varieties, including their famous milk pail 24, and they have 60 varieties of pumpkin squash, all kinds of goodies, and they have a whole orchard of dwarf apple trees, which are perfect for all ages, and their pumpkins some are mini, and they actually had 150 pound plus. So it's fun to do. Admission is free, and you may have to buy a half bushel bag, and they have half peck bag, full peck bag. And then another place I like, I've been talking about for years, Masca Orchards, 45 Ball Road, Warwick, New York, and they're open seven days a week. Kids love it. It's got so much going on. You can bring a picnic lunch. There are baby animals, pony rides, wagon rides. It's great. And it's a real farm, and everyone in the family is going to love it. They have a country store which sells jams, pies, cider, and more, and their snack bar is open on the weekends. And Windy Brow Farms at 359 Ridge Road in Newton, New Jersey, apple picking, and according to friends who live in the area, they make the best ice cream in the state of New Jersey. Fig, honey, walnut, and ricotta ice cream, and that is so good, and they caramelize walnuts and fig jam and put it in. They have just the best ice cream. Honey lavender ice cream with local honey, delicious. This is a lovely place to go and a great area. So enjoy all the goodies. It's perfect time to pick apples and you'll have applesauce, apple pie, apple cake, all kinds of goodies for the holidays. So enjoy every bit of it. And I'm looking at the clock. We're coming up to three o'clock. So enjoy the rest of the day on WABC. I'm Joan Hamburg. 